This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thanks for tuning in. The text that I'd like to begin with is John chapter 7, verses 8 through 10. This is an exchange Jesus is having with his brothers, half-brothers I should say, before going up to the feast in Jerusalem. And so in John chapter 7 and verse 8, Jesus says to them, You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. And sometimes it's alleged from this text that Jesus is being duplicitous. And so cynics and skeptics will jump on this to malign his characters. And strangely enough, some professing Christians will also use this as an example of Jesus being duplicitous in his intentions. And so it's okay then to tell white lies or half-truths so the reasoning goes. And I want to take a look again at this text and see what's really happening. Is there any validity to that? I don't believe that there is, but let's go through it and talk about what's happening. So, as I mentioned, unbelievers will charge Christ with dishonesty because of his response to his half-brothers. Uh, they are. John is revealing that here. At this point, Jesus' brothers did not yet believe in him. If you were to back up to verse 5 in the text... And see, John gives the commentary that his his brothers did not yet believe in him. So his brothers here, some folks will tell you, well, this means cousins, but that's not the word that's being used. We know from Matthew 13, 55 and John chapter 2 and verse 12 that Joseph and Mary had children after Jesus, of course, the virgin birth of Jesus and the Holy Spirit um, put Jesus in, in Mary's womb. They had other children and they're his half-brothers and sisters. And two of them, at least, or some of them on this this occasion, are kind of taunting him about going up here. When the, you know, your Bible might say they urged him to go up to the feast, but what they're really doing is taunting him, right? Because, as I said in verse five, as John says in verse verse five, they don't believe in him, uh, and so they're they're using this rationale to. Um, try to out him, or you know tempt him to be an exhibitionist. If you look in verse 3, it, they say, so that go up so that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. And then they say in verse 4, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, then show yourself to the world. And then we get the beginning of Jesus' response and saying that his time has not yet come in verse 6, and he rebukes them in verse 7. The world hates me. Because I testify that its works are evil, the world cannot hate you. So pay careful attention to what he's doing there. In other words, he's saying, you don't have the courage to follow me and acknowledge the truth as evidenced by your relation to the rest of the world, which I condemn that its works are evil. Right. So then, you know, we comes the verses that we read at the beginning of the podcast, the alleged duplicity in verses 8 through 10 regarding Jesus' intentions about the feast. I'm not going up right now. My time's not yet fully come. So that obviously takes on different a different color, right, when you consider the full exchange here of the conversation. So first, the issue was not whether Jesus was going to go to the feast. That was never in doubt, and here's the reason why. The Feast of Tabernacles was one of three annual feasts that all Jewish males were required to attend by law in Deuteronomy 16, 
verses 16 and 17. Jesus never sinned. He kept the law perfectly. So he was going to go. So that was never the issue, right? The, the issue really is the manner in which he is going to go. And that becomes clear again as we look at the full conversation and as we see his unbelieving half-brothers were daring him to do what they believed he could not do. And that is, put your power on full display. You perform these miracles and someone who is claiming to be who you are, which they didn't understand, even his own disciples, those who, who did believe him, didn't quite grasp the nature of his kingdom yet, the spiritual nature of his kingdom. But they're saying, put, put your power on full display, basically. But the gospel reveals time and time again that Jesus in his wisdom chose discretion when performing miracles. In places like Matthew 8 and verse 4, in chapter 16 and verse 20, Mark chapter 8 and verse 30, again in chapter 9 and verse 9, and in Luke chapter 9 and verse 21, he would give specific instructions to people to not go and tell others. And he would do that in an attempt to not uh, excite attention to himself or parade himself through towns, as he says here in this conversation with his brothers, his time has not yet come. And so when others, when we look in those accounts, when others failed to follow his instructions, it was detrimental. Verse uh, 45 in Mark chapter 1 says that because those individuals there didn't follow his instructions, it says that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. Right, so it wasn't that he was, um, you know, shy or you know trying to hold anything back from people or withhold from people some teaching or something that would bring them to faith. That wasn't the point at all. It's that for his purpose and his wisdom, the most effective and efficient way to do this was to be discreet about it, at least for a time until, obviously, he would be uh, there in public in Jerusalem. Uh, during the last week or so of his his life, he taught publicly. Uh, at other times, that's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm what I'm trying to say is clearly he has in mind here a time when he is going to um, put his power on display. It's going to be un, undeniable, and it it will be a time of his choosing, right? Because he knew once he pushed the needle that the kind of response that he was going to get, and that would bring about his crucifixion. So all of that to say, getting back to the issue at hand, the issue was the manner in which Jesus was going to go up to the, to the feast. It simply was not his time to go in an open and demonstrative way as his brothers were challenging him to do. And so when, you know, John says he went up as in secret, that means what that's saying is that Jesus was refusing to bow to his brother's challenge to make a spectacle of himself at the feast. It wasn't that he was being secretive in the, in the way that we typically think of it and as deceptive or uh, something, you know, some sort of nefarious kind of connotation, but it just meant that he went without bowing to his brother's challenge to be this, to put on a show and perform. Uh, he was always going to go. That was never the issue. So going to Ju- Judea, is used in a couple of different ways. So the brothers, again, are challenging him to go in a flamboyant kind of flash fashion, which he's refusing to do. And on the other hand, going to Judea was going to happen in a way that was consistent with his own purpose, with his own schedule, and to meet the ends that he desired to bring about in people. 
He wasn't going to go in the fashion that they wanted to, wanted him to. Uh, he would simply go secretly. So any, all that to say, anybody trying to find, whether we're talking about cynics trying to find deception in this text, or professing Christians trying to justify some duplicity in their lives, they're going to have to look elsewhere because they're not going to find it here. They're not going to find duplicity or deception in, in Christ. The next text that I want to look at is Psalm chapter 15. So related to this, this discussion that we're having about duplicity, um, this is what David says in Psalm 15 in verses 1 and 2. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell on your holy mountain, he who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Now, David will go on to name a number of other things there and qualifications and godly behaviors and attitudes. But I want to seize upon that first part as relates to our first discussion, that the one who will have fellowship with God, who will dwell in God's abode or in his tent, in his holy mountain, which in Scripture, Isaiah chapter 2, is a picture of God's family, uh, the church and the new covenant, is the one who is willing to speak truthfully in his heart. And... That's the first thing that's mentioned here. Walking blamelessly, doing what's right, speaking truth in your heart. We have a hard time, human beings in general have trouble telling the truth, even when they say and sometimes believe they are telling the truth. And that's an obvious statement of fact, I know. But my point is, is that we have learned many devious ways to shade and twist and otherwise avoid telling the whole truth. And we, you know, we have come up with the words to describe what we're doing, like half-truths or white lies, which incidentally are a favorite device of Satan, a favorite tactic that he uses along with his followers. You know, he's called the father of lies by Jesus in John chapter 8. And when you look in Genesis chapter 3 and that exchange that he has with Eve, that is, this is what he's doing there in Genesis. He's telling a half-truth in the very beginning to get humans to sin. In verse 5, he says, God knows that on the day you eat of it, speaking of the fruit, of course, um, the tree, of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, God knows on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And it was true that Eve's eyes were opened in a sense, all right, but her experience of knowing good and evil did not make her like God. As promised, it was quite the opposite. She was unmade in a tragic and spiritual way. She was separated from God and had to leave the paradise he had created for her and her husband. And she began, she certainly died spiritually that day, but physical death also came into the world. And so half-truth tellers, like Satan, will deliberately withhold some, but not all facts, or twist them or shade them in such a way to create the impression of truth. That's the deviousness of it. To try and create the impression of truth in order to accomplish some hidden agenda. And so it's very insidious. And we've been created with the capacity to speak, first of all, and think and reason uh, but to love and, and be creative and have compassion and, and things like this. And we've been made intelligent and rational in God's image, all these different things that we could name. 
But when we when we pervert those things, those gifts, those mental faculties and emotions and motives and the power of choice that he's given us to when we pervert those things to corrupted ends, we can we can get very creative and we can be very insidious in our ways in which we try to impress people with quote truth, which is just another way of telling a lie. It's a half a half truth so that we can accomplish some hidden agenda, whether it's to protect our own image um, and save face or, you know, because we desire something else that maybe that individual has something that we want, whatever the case may be. You take Abram as an example in Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 through 20. We won't go through the whole exchange, but this is a time in Abraham's life when he goes to Egypt and he convinces his wife, Sarai, and of course we're talking about Abraham and Sarah, but their names are Abram and Sarai at this particular point in, in history. And he convinces her to join him in telling the Egyptians that she was his sister. And it's true they were half-siblings, um, but he asked this of her so that he would not be put to death when others desire to take her. So we have, So we can sympathize with Abram, we think, yeah, you're going to this new country, you have a pretty wife, and individuals there are going to have the power to take her away from you and kill you and make her somebody else's wife. And so he says to her, well, just say that you're my sister, which was technically true. They were, again, half-siblings. So that that's what happens in Genesis 12. Pharaoh, when they go to Egypt, hears about Sarai's beauty, and and he takes her to be his own wife because he believes that she is... Abram's sister, and he lavishes Abram with gifts. And then God brings plagues upon Pharaoh and his whole household for taking another man's wife. And if you look at verses 18 and 19, you see Pharaoh's response. He says to Abram, why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for myself as a wife. And so he's, so Pharaoh is rebuking Abraham for Abram for this deceit and terrible things had happened to him and his family as a result of what Abram and Sarai conspired together to do. And in response, Abram could have said, well, you know, well, technically she is my sister or I never said that she wasn't my wife. So it's kind of your fault for not asking. We would recognize that I think in in any other circumstances, just an empty defense. We would say that's ludicrous because, again, Abram intended, his intent was for Pharaoh. We know on the record, Abraham and Sarai intended for Pharaoh to believe that Sarai was Abraham's sister and nothing more. And then plagues ensue, people suffer, not to mention the danger to Sarai and the self-inflicted dishonor Abram brought for himself by letting another man take his wife. So half-truths, they thrive on technicalities. They thrive on the selective withholding of facts. But make no mistake, half-truths are an enemy of honesty. They're hated by God and willed by Satan. If they weren't hated by God, what would have happened wouldn't have happened, right? But punishment comes as a result. Let me give you another example. In Acts chapter 5, of Ananias and Sapphira. So these were people who had obeyed the gospel. They were members of the church there in Jerusalem. 
And at that particular time, there were a number of disciples like Barnabas who were selling their property, different properties or tracts of land that they had, and bringing the money to the apostles. And then the apostles would distribute that money to the needy Christians who were who were there in Jerusalem. And, and, and Barnabas is known as a son of encouragement, and he's a man of reputation for, for doing this. And Ananias and Sapphira are mentioned specifically as Christians who, who do the same thing. They bring proceeds from the sale of some land that they have to relieve Christians in need. And they were, the, the problem is in Acts chapter 5 is that they wanted to give the impression that they had given the full price when in fact they had. And they were more than happy to let their brethren believe that they had given the full amount when in fact, in verse 3, they had kept back some for themselves. Right, so th- this was their sin. It wasn't that their sin wasn't that they didn't give the full amount. Their sin was as that they led others to believe that they gave the full amount. And you can put that together when you look at verses four and eight specifically, because Peter is challenging them and saying, you know, when the land was yours, it was in your possession, and after it was sold, you could have essentially done what you wanted to do, but you you lied to God and you hold the Holy Spirit. Verse five, Peter says they lied to God, and for their deception they die. Again, they were selectively withholding some some certain fact. They wanted to give the impression of something different. They wanted to give the impression of this truth, quote, that they were more generous than they actually were. They were giving these proceeds to these to the apostles to give to their their brethren. And it was just a sliver of the truth, though, and it can be persuasive. Slivers of truth can be persuasive. But they are still empty and deceptive and provoke the wrath of God. Ananias and Sapphira are killed as a result of this. God makes an example of them both. And so it seems like a contradiction. But it's possible to use portions of truth to deceive. And we just, all we need to do is look in Scripture to see that and to see. Satan himself operating that 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 way in Genesis chapter three, of course, as we looked at, but also in Matthew chapter four, verses one through eleven, when he is tempting Jesus. Remember, Satan quotes scripture to Jesus in order to try and get Jesus to uh, bow to him, obey him. So truth isn't really truth when we embellish it, when we exaggerate it, when we just flat out omit information or pretending ignorance. And that's the short list. There's all sorts of things tactics and attitudes that we could talk about that uh, are, are are sinful and ultimately don't serve the truth but serve our own ends. Uh, we could talk about silence and there may be times when silence is appropriate. John chapter 19 and verse 9, you know, Jesus himself as prophecy foretold was uh, silent as a lamb is before his shears. Um, or before the slaughter, rather, I'm I'm paraphrasing. Uh, But the silence itself was not deceptive. In fact, when Jesus was silent in regard to the questions being asked him, he had already answered those and and acknowledged who he was and, and his claims that he had made. So when truth is spoken, it should be forthright and plainly stated. Truth... Psalm 15, 1 and 2 is the product of an honest heart. It begins in the heart, speaking truth in the heart. David will later say in Psalm 51 and verse 6 that 
Behold, O Lord, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So that's where it begins, and that's where God is is looking. And that's where our attention needs to be. So we have to ask ourselves, am I telling the whole truth? Did I just tell the whole truth or only part of it? Am I hiding a portion of the truth to make myself look good or to escape something? Did I did I tell the truth in a deceitful way? And did I just did I do I make sure that my words have no hidden agenda behind them or ulterior motive? I need to honestly examine what I say to be sure, but I I need to honestly examine how and why I'm saying it. We can easily deceive ourselves like the good old boy that one preacher used as an example of whom he said he'd tell the truth five or six different ways before he'd tell a lie. And sadly, too many people think exactly the same way. And David says, Who may abide in your tent, O Lord, who will dwell on your holy mountain? The one who walks blamelessly, does what is right, and speaks truth in his heart. That's the kind of man Jesus was. He wasn't duplicitous or deceptive in any way. And he calls for that and appreciates that in others. Remember what he said to Nathaniel when he saw him coming. Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And so we have to constantly work to make sure we are speaking truth in our hearts, first to ourselves, to God, and then to others. Thanks for tuning in.